Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I am. So I'm on Wurundjeri country, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people we might have here today. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Zivit Inbar about leading organisational culture from the top and shielding from biases in the boardroom. First, let me tell you about Zivit. Zivit is on the boards of Rural Northwest Health and a member of Standards Australia AI Trustworthiness and Governance Committees. She is also a member of the Harvard Alumni Entrepreneurs Leadership Team in Australia. Zivit is the founder and CEO of Different Thinking a consulting practice that specialises in people, culture, leadership and performance strategies for growth. Zivit has over 20 years of experience at executive and board levels, spanning private and listed local and global organisations. She's an adjunct professor at Deakin University's MBA program, a graduate of Harvard Kennedy's School Executive Program in Leadership Decision-Making and Leadership in Uncertain Times, a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a fellow certified member of the Australian Human Resources Institute. She's also done her PhD focused on strategic thinking and strategy implementation by Western companies operating in China and she is the author of The Ethical Kaleidoscope, Values, Ethics and Corporate Governance with her co-author, Doug Long. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Zivit. Hi, Helia. Thank you for <laughs> inviting me. Oh, absolute pleasure. And, you know, just from that bio at the start, I know we're going to have an awesome conversation. Um, but as always, before we dig into leading organisational culture from the top and bias in the boardroom, Let's dig a little bit deeper about you. So can you tell me what was young Zivit like and when did you get your first inkling that you might end up where you are now? All right. So first of all, as a child, I didn't even know that boards existed. I grew up in a kibbutz in Israel and kibbutz is like growing up in like a small community, rural or even remote. In primary school, and Heli, I'm going to tell you here something that I know that you don't know about me. Ooh. In primary school, I was a very good um, student, advanced 
um, very advanced in my, uh, to my age. But um, high school was not the same experience. Mm-hmm. And there was a gap between my ability to verbalize my knowledge and put it down in writing. The issue was that everyone thought that I'm lazy. So every teacher-parent interview, they would tell me numerous times that I'm not going to get anywhere in life. And I was really, really lucky that my parents supported me and believed in me. But I felt that there is a problem that I do know everything. It just doesn't come in my marks. And then I came to uni. Surprisingly, for the, from the first semester, I topped the faculty throughout my first degree, my master's degree, and in my PhD in all those three studies, I actually was on scholarship for excellence. It was only during my master's of science that I found out that I have severe dyslexia. Mm-hmm. And hence my experience in high school. At that point of time, by the way, I was already in the leadership team of a global technology company. So my career was really shaped to executive positions due to my dyslexic advantages. But high school was very, very different. And so when you say how was I as a young person, I was very intrinsic. Um, lack of confidence and not sure what is happening, why people are telling me that I'm lazy and why, you know, and what will happen with my life. Am I going to go anywhere? So for me, I've never thought that I'll be able to uh, get to uni, not to mention to have a PhD. Being an adjunct professor, when I got accepted to the Harvard executive program, I didn't say anything even to my family. It took me hours to keep on looking on my phone and check whether I get, um, I'm sorry, that was a mistake email. When I, (laughs) this is true, when I thought about writing a book, I thought, oh, I'm really pushing myself, but now I'm writing my second book. So that's my young, young Zivit. But what also happened is that I was in mid to late 20s, I was already an executive. Mm-hmm. And how many years can you do the same thing? So yes, in here it's called Chief Human Resource Officer, and here it's called something else. You move from one organization to another, a bit of different organizational politics, a bit of changing in the, in the challenges, but it's the same thing. And hence, so when I got to early 40s, I started thinking, is this what I really want to do for the next 25 years of my career? I've mm. been here already 15 years. And that's how I decided that I really want to change my career path to eventually have a board portfolio to open my consulting firm and to give back to the community. And the giving back was fast. You know, I got offered to be an adjunct professor. I got an offer to sit on a non-for-profit board. Thereafter, I opened my consulting firm and building a, a board career, a portfolio. You need a lot of patience. It takes time, but I'm on my way. So really, I never thought about boards before my, about reaching to my 40s. You know, having worked in HR and so on, I'm guessing you worked with boards uh, through that. So getting that glimpse into the boardroom, then, as you say, a bit later on went, ah, I've had a glimpse and that's where I want to start to build along with these other things. 
Yeah. yeah. I really loved the strategic world nature and working with the board was about strategy and governance. Mm. And it's a different type of thinking, totally. Yeah, it is a different type of thinking and hopefully for good boards, having that real diversity in the boardroom means that you get all of those different views from, you know, the finance people, from the people and culture people, from, you know, all of the different perspectives and then collectively come up with those good decisions, well, hopefully. Where should we begin? Should we start with that leading culture from the top or shielding from biases? Where's the best spot for us? Let's start with culture. I just want to mention, I think we're really talking about three topics combined, which mm. is culture, biases and ethics. Yes. Because ethics is there everywhere. And I think it's interesting, maybe even five years ago, I don't think people talked much about ethics in the boardroom, but increasingly, possibly since the Financial Services Royal Commission in Australia, but possibly some other big collapses in corporate culture and corporate governance, it's becoming more of a thing and I love that it's becoming more of a thing like people now. So I would love to touch on that as well. You know, when I started the research for the book, I interviewed more than 30 chairpersons in Australia and, and the US and New Zealand. And a few people actually said to me that they are worried that, and I'm talking about chairpersons, that I um, chose ethics for the theme of the book because mm -hmm. one even said to me, the board has nothing to do with ethics. <gasps> and a few said to me, it's going to, yeah, yeah, it's going to, you know, put obstacles in your way to finding job position on boards. <gasps> and what happened was that two months after uh, we launched the book, the Royal Commission started. Mm -hmm. And that changed the entire discussion. But let's start with uh, uh, talking about culture because this is really what convinced me yes. to go and do the research and write a book about corporate ethics and, and the role of boards. This really happened as an executive in an HR regional role. Mm. And I had to deal with a sexual harassment complaint, which the way I dealt with it was appointed an external investigator and two psychologists, one to help the female employee who complained and one to help her manager whom the investigation was mm -hmm. against. Mm -hmm. While those external people were working, I received an instruction, very explicit instruction from the global headquarter telling me that I have to falsify the investigation and find the female employee guilty of not telling the truth, which was not the case. I was also told that I have to terminate her and clear her manager from all wrongdoing. And if I'm not going to do it, I'm going to lose my job. Oh now, my God. I, I had it. It was a face-to-face -face discussion. I was sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, that's not happening. At the end of every day, I need to go back home, look in the mirror and love who I am. And hence, my values are my compass. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, I, I can't do it. And it's just illegal, but it's also unethical. We have the investigation happening externally. We have the psychological support. We will find a way to deal with it. And, and we did find a way to deal with it in a way that both sides 
were happy with the conclusion, but I lost my job. After that, a while after that, I was invited to a small event um, at ARI, the Australian Human Resources Institute. And the then CEO, Lynn Goodwin, quoted a survey result that they just did with alarming percentile of agile leaders that said that they have lost their job because they refused to turn a blind eye to bullying and harassment issues. Mm. And, you know, my speciality, even when I was HR executive with cultural transformation and OD and all these type of experiences. And there were not similar, but ethical other issues to deal with and in HR. I thought about it, where is the board? The one thing I forgot to mention is that when all these situations happened at the same time, this company was a daughter company of a global organization. And the board of the global organization sent surveys for a certain percentile of employees of all the companies about ethics. And that was happening at the same time. So I got it. And you could mark and you could put anything that you want in writing. And I've put it there and I provided my details and I've asked to, you know, I said, I I would like to speak about it with someone else. I do know that others came to me to say that they received it and they gave one out of five and they put some issues there. But none of us have ever been approached. And I thought, where is the board? Where is the board? If you find that there are ethical issues in an organization that you are invested in, is it not your responsibility? So this is really why I went to write the book. I do believe that organizational culture and ethics are led from the top. And ethics exists everywhere in the organization, in the marketing, to procurement, product, leadership, and I believe that boards must, one, understand the cultural mosaic in each organization, because it's not one culture, it's a mosaic, to identify the areas of toxic culture, and three, lead the cultural changes from the top. Mm. Oh, I know I'm not responsible for it, and I know it was a while ago, but God, I'm so sorry to hear about that. It is... And and for the woman that was involved as well, you know, that is just so frustrating that that is the response. We solved it well. It was not done on purpose. Yes, it's setting the tone from the top. Might not have been done on purpose, but the response of wanting to wipe it under the carpet rather than deal with it. Uh, she yeah. didn't even know why I left the organisation. <laughs> oh, her my goodness. We solved her, and, and, and that was all what I wanted. Yes. I was really, really caring for her well-being. Yes. And yes. It, but it was resolved well despite the company and because of you and because you put yourself forward. Like in terms of thinking about leadership from the top on these things, do you know the instruction that you got, was it from the executive level or from the boardroom level? Are you aware? And are you able to share? (laughs) Um, Certainly from the global executive team. What happened beyond it, uh, I'm not sure. What are the questions you would have liked the board to be asking so that they know that this sort of thing is happening so that they can lead that constructive culture from the top? I'm not sure it's 
only questions. Mm. I, I think we really need to understand the cultural mosaic because th this was a mosaic, right? They were holding mm. many companies and yes. that was a problem in one company. But we, we, we can have different different culture in one organization with, you know, different culture in different divisions or departments or, or even in different professions as, you know, like in hospitals, mm, there are different mm. uh, professional cultures. So we really, I don't think it's about asking questions. I think it's about needing to know what's going on the floor. Yes. And I think, I think it's not enough to base our understanding on the executive report. Yes. Right. Uh, we need to walk the floor, but not in big groups that are intimidating people because we can ask them questions and get through answers. I think that we need to watch for certain uh, cultural elements like ethical decision making, like mm -hmm. accountability and blame, leadership styles, safety and well-being, whether there is teamwork and collaboration across departments what ethical questions the execs are asking themselves. I mean, these are very, very important elements. We have to have our finger on what is happening on the mm. floor. And it's interesting in that, isn't it, that with the global pandemic that we are now in the second, coming into third year of, walking the floor is actually much more difficult. I mean, it's often difficult for board members, but it's much more difficult now because walking the floor is somehow having a Zoom conversation with people and it's much harder to kind of get in and have the side conversations. It's harder to just observe and listen to those conversations that happen in the lift or happen in the hallways because we're not in the hallways of many organisations. So for boards, what's your advice at the moment? Organisational diagnosis. That's what we need. And yes. we need an external organisational diagnosis that is not based on surveys like employee opinion survey and stuff like that. Unfortunate people don't trust them and they lie in surveys. Yes. External organisational diagnosis, cultural diagnosis, when a person like me or like you interviews the, mm -hmm. um, uh, the employees in different departments and stuff like that, it is less biased and, mm. and more accurate. And also yes. organizational diagnosis, the people that conduct them like us can come up with some recommendations where the risks are. Yeah, where the risks are, where the challenges are, where the opportunities are. And that external view, interesting. Although, can I say also at the same time, the example you gave before about the organisation and a number of people saying ethics is very low, one out of five, also paying attention to that sort of feedback as well, if that survey information is coming, delving into that and saying, what's going on here? This is not good. We, we're going to speak about it in the next example because uh, sometimes we don't get this information. Uh. The next story to share is actually from one of my early career non-executive director's role, where I was really upset. I felt that all the information that we receive at the board is always presented one way. I felt that we were being manipulated mm -hmm. without presenting you know, the risks and, uh, and disadvantages and when the executive wanted to convince us to support a certain ID. I shared my concern with one of my board colleagues. 
who actually had her executive role was somewhere else, was in marketing. And she really didn't understand what's my problem. And mm-hmm. she said that her role as GM marketing is to review all the board's papers before mm-hmm. they go out and ensure that all the messages are presented to convince the board to agree with the executive <sighs> and hide the weak areas. Years after I went to study at Harvard and I studied leadership decision-making, which now I understand whether it is intentionally or not intentionally, all the reports that we receive are biased. And what this course provided me is with the tools, how to shield the board's decision from these biases. So I use shielding tactics regularly. I'll share with you a couple of examples. Mm. (laughs) Are you familiar with Yziati? Oh, no. Yziati is the best thing in the world. Um, Yziati is Daniel Kahneman um, discusses this bias. It's basically our brain keeps on telling us what you see is all there is. Why is the What you see is all there is. So what happens is that we sit to review a report and we analyze the report, almost forgetting to look at what's missing from the report. And Mm. we really need to remember that behind every report, someone decided which questions to ask, how to collect the information, what information to collect. Someone does the analysis, makes the conclusion, makes the recommendation and decides what to put in the report mm-hmm. and what's not to include in the report. And that doesn't need to be intentional. It yes. could be a bias, but every report that we receive, when mm-hmm. we read, when I read it, after analyzing, I ask myself, is Yziati? A while ago, we had a health and safety report to discuss. The report was really administrative. Mm -hmm. Right. And it didn't mention any conclusions, any learning from a critical safety issue that appeared in the Mm -hmm. past. And I asked the executives, what have we learned from that event and what are we currently doing differently to ensure it doesn't happen again? Because that was really, really severe. The nice thing about Zoom that you can see people's face and you could see the surprise on, on the faces, like what is she asking us, something that is not in the report. And I just sat there and, and thought to myself, are we as a board fall into Yziati? Do mm. we tend always to ask questions about what we receive and forget what's out there? Why are they surprised otherwise? So that's one shield, Yziati. The other shield is neutral framing. Mm -hmm. Now, most people are willing to act when they are presented with risks rather than with opportunities. If you think about COVID and we'll take Sydney Gladys, right? When she said, people are going to die, go and get your injections. People went to take the injections. When she changed the narrative into the more people will get vaccinated, we will be able able to open up, the -hmm. vaccination curve went down, right? Mm -hmm. Naturally, the majority of people are willing to ask um, when they are presented with risks. 
Mm-hmm. Ensuring a neutral framework means that as board member, we are checking that the information about all the options of action is presented to us as unbiased as possible with its advantages, disadvantages, opportunities, risks and, and calculation. And sometimes it is just a bias, but you know there are a few options that they present to us, but one option, there are more calculation or is yes. more shining and Incidentally, this is the option that the executives are supporting. When I finish reading it, I look at how the information is presented. And when the information is presented in a one way, I always ask questions to understand the other way, mm-hmm. what, what is missing there. And what I do when I work with boards, I actually have those with Harvard approval, their assessments. To show that to show the common biases in the board team, yes. um, and then we work to tweak the decision making process to shield from these biases. I'm not talking about any diversity and biases like that. I'm talking only mm-hmm. about strategy, risk, ethical decision making, things yeah. that we can tweak easily at the boardroom. For example, with neutral framing, if we can see that majority of board members respond to risk, we can actually ask executives to speak also on opportunities on a regular basis in their yes. reports. Yes. And vice versa. So. My guess is that the more diversity you have in the boardroom, like true diversity, people from different cultures, people from different backgrounds, people from different thinking, then the more likely you are to be able to pull apart some of those biases that exist everywhere. Is that the case? Diversity is certainly helpful. Mm -hmm. Awareness and understanding is Mm -hmm. helpful. You know, there are also biases in ethical decision-making that we can tweak very, very easily to, Mm -hmm. to prevent inefficient decisions. So many fabulous things in there, Zivet. Um, So what are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? All right, because we really spoke about culture, ethics, and biases. I'll split the main point. We spoke a lot about the need to understand the organizational culture and not from the report and the view of the executives, but really the ability to identify toxic culture and lead cultural changes. And I'm not sure that I was clear enough. When I say lead cultural changes, I don't mean becoming operational in that. But I do think that every board should have a cultural statement. So be very clear what is the culture, what we want. Not assume Mm -hmm. that the executives know what culture we want to have. Mm -hmm. And when we realize that this is not the culture, to drive and ensure that there is a cultural change plan and its milestone and how it's going. With regards to biases, always ask yourself, is Yziati? Is what I see is all there is or what am I missing? And yes. always ensure neutral framing and probe when this is not the case. All human beings are biased mm. and all teams can fall into team biases which are different Mm -hmm. than the individual biases. And this is why sometimes a group of very smart people make dumb decisions. (laughs) And we'll stop here. (laughs) 
but therefore it is essential to understand the specific biases that each board teams and each executive team tends to to fall into and, and understand how to fine tune this decision process. And with regards to ethics, we spoke about ethics is everywhere in every decision, let it be a big or a small. It is also part of the organizational culture. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we need to remember is that sometimes the culture and ethics at the board are different than those on the floor. Yes. And we need to ensure that the ethical standards in the organization align with those of the board and sometimes just not the same. And we think, oh, because we we speak a lot about ethics, this is what the executive are implementing, but it could be that we are not. Or because our culture is very respective and collaborative and we ask many questions, that does not mean that this is what's happening on the floor. It's not about setting a policy or ensuring that the ethical conduct policies on the website. We really need to understand that. And some biases affect our ethical decision making. We need to understand them. One of the things that I love about being on the RNH board, the hospital, is that we do not shy from ethical discussions. Believe Mm. me, we do not shy from ethical discussions. And we often speak about what is the right thing to do. Mm. And I really think that these discussions are so essential for proper governance. Yes, and should happen more. Uh, What is the right thing to do? Not just what is the best thing to do, what is the right thing to do? You know, sometimes it's a 51-49. There's been plenty of times in the pandemic where I have not envied governments and leadership in having to come up with those answers. So, Yes, yes. and both of us, you know, on a hospital board. Yeah. Basically representing the minister there. We think that there's the public the taxpayers and there is the community so many complexities and so many stakeholders to consider the right thing to do is not not always simple as as it sounds absolutely most often is not as simple as it sounds oh um is there a resource you would like to share with the take on board community so obviously I read all the AICD materials, but everyone speak about it. So I'll move to two other resources. My executive background is from private slash listed companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm on a public hospital board. So one of the resources that is interesting that I read is the Apolitical Newsletter. Mm-hmm. And it has some interesting articles that basically helped me understand some of the complexities of leading in the public sector. It's a global newsletter, so you can Mm. also see what's happening in other countries as well. So a political newsletter is very interesting. And the next one sounds funny, but edX, EDX, Mm. edX. So edX is a platform um, with free courses, right? And you think, why would that help for boards. So first of all, there are free courses from mm. the Ivy League universities and there are advanced courses. So there are advanced courses in, you know, finance and M&As and stuff like that, but there are advanced courses in understanding different industries and complexities that different industries 
are currently dealing with. There are advanced courses in how boards can deal with organizational culture for leadership and, and you know, but it really is a good resource. Fabulous. And I'd never heard of the Apolitical Newsletter, so we will put a link to both of those in the show notes and also the AICD just so people can access any of the resources there as well. Oh, Zivit, thank you so much, you know, valuable nuggets of gold here about culture, about bias and about ethics. So thank you so much for sharing your time and sharing your wisdom with the Take On Board community today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Helia. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.